0: Good morning. If I can have everyone get in your seats, we'll get started this morning. Um, First of all, um, before we get started, does everybody have a lavender sheet to take notes on? If not, raise your hand and Wendy will go make more copies. Anybody? Everyone have one? Wonderful. Perfect. Well, first of all... I'm excited to be given the privilege to do this this morning, so I'm excited that you're here, and I'm excited um, that my husband asked me to do this topic because it's forced me to really think about this. So um, first of all, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Carissa Levering. My husband is the pastor um, of this church, Westgate Church, and um, right now in my life, I get to be... Brandon's wife and I am a mom to four kids. Um, Joshua is nine, Mariah is five, Eva is two, and Chloe just turned one. So, <laughs> that is my stage in life. So, no one ever sees me without somebody with me. So, this is this is fun. So, <laughs> thank you for letting me be here. This morning, I wanted us to think about what it means to find satisfaction in Jesus in order that we might rest securely in Jesus. So what we're looking at is what it means to find satisfaction in Jesus in order that we might rest securely in Jesus. This is something that I'm in the process of learning amidst the chaos of my daily life. Rest sometimes feels like an elusive dream, something I crave and want to hold on to, but it just slips through my fingers. Whether it's physical rest, the fact that almost every night I share my bed with more people than just my husband, and I usually end up being the sardine in the middle, crammed into some uncomfortable position that basically gives me a light, fitful sleep at best, and usually a headache in the morning. Or whether it's emotional rest, praying that the Lord would take away the anxiety and hypochondria that I've dealt with much of my life but it seems to be the thorn in my side that remains. Or whether it's spiritual rest, not spending time with Jesus through reading my Bible in prayer, and so my heart and mind lose perspective, and I grasp for control and sin against my husband and my children in the process. Impatience, anger, and the like overflow out of my mouth because my heart is tired and has lost sight of the heart of my Savior Jesus. This is my heart. This is how I felt the exhaustion of life overtake me in different ways. My guess is that every woman in this room can relate at least in some way and fill in the blanks of how you personally deal with physical, emotional, and spiritual exhaustion. Whether it's long hours at work, only to come home to a messy house and hungry children, Or whether you're dealing with the pain of betrayal or rejection or loneliness or or illness or feeling like you never quite measure up. Or whether it's anger at God for deep loss, pain, and regret over how your life is turning out. Whatever it is, we're tired, very tired, trying to live life in this broken world. And we need rest. But until we get to the root of our hearts, our spiritual well-being, we cannot begin to deal with the physical and emotional rest. First and foremost, we need spiritual rest, freedom from worry, fear, people-pleasing, and anything else that captures our hearts. In order to find rest in a world of constant chaos, we must first know the only one who can give it the only one who has overcome this world and all of the chaos in it, the very one who made it and us. This one calls us to come to him. He calls us with great love and compassion and empathy, not just sympathy, but empathy. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This one has walked a road of deep suffering and pain for us, and so he understands the fear, anxiety, pain, and rejection that mark our lives. He wants to give us rest. Not just rest for our temporary bodies, but rest for our souls, our souls which will last forever. And this only happens through recognizing and choosing to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. So who is he and what has he done and what will he do? This morning as we consider these questions, I want us to fix our eyes on Jesus and either get to know him for the first time or else see him again for who he is and become captivated again by his love. Let's pray. Lord, you are the only one who can give rest to weary hearts. I pray for each and every woman in this room. Lord, you have brought them here, and you love them deeply. And I pray that you would meet each and every woman in a special way this morning. Meet me as well, Lord Jesus, open our hearts, and our minds to hear your word and hear what you have to say, and give rest to our weary souls. In Jesus' name, Amen. One of the most comforting passages of Scripture for me is Exodus two twenty-three through three fifteen. So I think Sarah's going to put it up there, and we can read it together. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? The story of Exodus is a story of God rescuing his people and bringing them to himself. God's people, Israel, are in slavery in Egypt. They are being treated terribly and even killed by Pharaoh, who is afraid that because there are so many of them that they will try to take over is Egypt. So they're being severely oppressed. They are crying out to God for deliverance. And in our passage, God is raising up Moses to be his instrument of deliverance for his people. Now, Moses was raised as an Egyptian, but by birth is an Israelite. He has actually fled from Egypt because he killed an Egyptian for beating an Israelite slave. Now, God has come to Moses and is asking him to go back to the very people he's fleeing from, to go back to the people who raised him, And to tell them to let God's people go. Moses is understandably scared and hesitant, and so he asks God who he is. He wants to know who God is so that he can tell the Israelites who has sent him to deliver them. God, in his mercy, reveals himself to Moses. He tells him that he is the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But more importantly, he tells Moses his name, his proper name. Yahweh, which shows up in our Bibles as the Lord in all capital letters. In the Bible, a name is often more than just a word to tell one person apart from another. A name represents someone's character or reputation. God's name, the Lord, means I am or I am who I am. In other words, God is who he says he is. He is who he reveals himself to be in this passage. So who is he? God makes his name and character known in this passage in special ways. So let's pay attention to the verbs, the action words related to God in these verses as I read. Chapter 2, 23 through 25 says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now listen to the words of verse 7. Then the Lord, or Yahweh, said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Let's let the beautiful truth of those words sink in. Israel's God, our God, is a God who sees his people, who hears their cries, who knows their sufferings, who remembers his covenant with them, and who comes down to deliver them from where they are to where he wants them to be. And he did this ultimately in Jesus. Listen to how God comes down to save his people in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant Jesus left everything, everything in order to come down to save us, but it doesn't end there. He defeats death by dying and rising again and is exalted to be with his father so that one day we too might share in that glory. We serve a God who is personal, a God who is intimate with his people's sufferings and who doesn't leave them there but who comes down into their sufferings to make all things right. He sees you. He hears you. He remembers his promises to you from his word. He knows your sufferings, and he has come down to deliver you, to bring you from where you are to where he wants you to be. These are the words of scripture that I have clung to at the points in my life when I have dealt with suffering, pain, confusion, sin, chaos, and the like. I serve a God who is intimate with me and who is with me in my suffering and sin and who hears me, sees me, knows my trials deeply, and who is the only one who can make it all right, the only one who can bring beauty from these ashes. In this truth and in this knowledge is the only place in which I can truly rest. The trials in our lives are real. They have impacted our lives deeply and completely and have caused us to feel desperately weary. Sometimes this is a symptom of our own selfishness and idolatry. And sometimes our pain and suffering are simply a reminder that we live in a fallen world. So first, I want us to think about our own sinfulness and our idolatry. Idolatry is treating something other than God as God. We fall into people pleasing, busyness, good grades. I personally threw it before a test in college because I had convinced myself that unless I got an A and was perfect in everything I did, that I wasn't honoring the Lord. That's idolatry in grades. <laughs> And we want to make sure we look good to a watching world. And thus, we find our identity in what we do rather than in what Jesus has done. We are all very tired people. We're tired from striving and from performing. We need a Savior who loves us enough to enter into that sin. We need Jesus. Friend, Jesus loves you deeply. He loves you simply because if you have trusted him, You are his. I love to tell my kids that. Do you know why I love you? Because you're mine. That's it. Jesus says that to us too. He told his people Israel in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. This was Israel's promise from Israel's God, but he is also our God. He loves us, not because of anything we have done or who we are, but simply because he has chosen us to be his. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, in our sin, made us alive together with Christ. These passages bring out the truth that God sees, hears, knows, remembers, and delivers us, not because of anything we've done or because we've been so good, But in spite of the fact that we haven't done what we should, and in spite of the fact that we haven't been good, he delivers us in the midst of our sin. Sin is anything we do or have done that is in direct obedience to God and his commandments. We all do it, and we all do it daily. Any time we find our identity or trust in something other than God himself to save us or to fulfill us, we sin. This leads us to one of two responses. We either become prideful because we actually are able to achieve fulfillment for a matter of time in our children, our marriages, our careers, our relationships, our grades, or we despair because we keep failing and we can't quite achieve the fulfillment we are longing for. And this shows itself in several different ways in our lives. For me, it is often in my children. When my children disobey in front of others, I become anxious and angry because I'm afraid that this will reflect on what people think of me as a mother. I am trying to be justified by my children and am more interested in how I am perceived rather than in my children and in their hearts. I forget that like me, they are sinners and that like me, they need the grace of Jesus in their own lives. The way that they see this grace is through me. I have to demonstrate the grace of Jesus, giving them the forgiveness and love that they don't deserve. Otherwise, I will drive them to despair. For you, it may be finding fulfillment in your career, feeling as though you need to perform well in order to be known or recognized or loved. It may be in your grades at school, your relationships, or your involvement in as many activities as possible, busyness, in order to impress the world around you feeling as though you have to perform well in these areas in order to be known or loved. In this way, we create functional saviors or idols. Now, none of these things in and of themselves are bad. But when they become the heartbeat of our lives, what we depend on, live for, and constantly think about, they become the gods that we serve. But the problem is that these gods eventually fail. We will all be let down and eventually crushed by the weight of constantly having to perform. Because the truth is that we're all sinners and that we will eventually fail in our performance. We may end up losing the job we've lived for as a result of our own failure or simply because it was eliminated. We may miss out on an important relationship because of our busyness sacrificing our children, our marriages, friendships for the way that we're perceived. We may say or do the wrong thing and lose or damage a friendship or marriage or parent-child relationship. And when we lose control and our gods fail us, we despair, grasp for control, and very often become depressed, sad, or angry, sinning even more. We will fail. We are sinners to our very core. In my life, this is obvious every day. If you walked into my home around 4.30 in the afternoon, please don't, (laughs) unannounced, (laughs) you would most likely see a frazzled, yelling woman tripping over toys scattered all over the floor, kicking dirty diapers out of the way, frustrated with my son for not having a good attitude about doing his homework and telling him impatiently to just do it and stop whining and to set an example for his sisters, not that I'm setting any kind of example for anybody myself, (laughs) while the supper is burning, my one-year-old is unloading a cupboard at my feet or crawling up my leg, and my five-year-old and two-year-old are playing some wild and loud game in the living room where someone ends up in tears, or else they're whining because they want a snack because they're hungry. But if they just open their eyes, they would see that I'm trying to make dinner, but the constant interruptions make that virtually impossible, and so I lose it. Yell, and want to crawl into some hole where no one can find me. (laughs) That's 4.30, my friends. (laughs) Clearly, I've forgotten. I'm pretty positive that's not how Jesus responds to chaos and sin. But the beautiful thing about our sin is the way that it can drive us to Jesus. Eventually, we must admit that we will mess up and fail in our own strength. That's why when Jesus calls to us to rest, I'm sorry, to rest and take his yoke, he is in effect saying, "I have done it all for you. I have lived perfectly for you. I have taken the punishment for your sin for you." I have defeated your greatest enemies, death and hell, for you. It is done, and you can rest. The amazing truth about all of this is that because God saw us in our sinfulness, heard our cries for saving, and remembered his promise to save those who trust in him as Savior and King, he sent Jesus to come down into our sinful, broken world to be tempted as we are, to know our temptation to sin, but to live a perfect life for us and to die in our place, thus rescuing us. Because of this truth, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us in our sinfulness. When God looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus. He sees us clothed in his perfect righteousness. We are perfectly loved, friends, And perfectly forgiven we can rest here and stop performing because Jesus has done it for us and as this truth begins to penetrate our hearts another beautiful response happens we realize that not just our sin but the sin of the world was paid for by Jesus which includes the sins committed against us Jesus dealt with that sin too And as so, as we meditate on Jesus' forgiveness toward us, our hearts soften and we begin to be able to forgive those who have sinned against us. As we're able to lay down our anger and resentment, our hearts are free to love, to forgive, and to rest. Now, the pain may remain for a time, but if our hearts gaze on Jesus' love and forgiveness, healing can begin and we find rest for our weary, hurting souls. I'm sorry. Weariness, though, is not always a result of sin. Sometimes it is simply because of the fact that we live in a world where things don't work as they should. We live in a world full of suffering, and we see it all around us. I will never forget a friend of mine rocking my two-month-old son in her aching, empty arms as we watched a slideshow of her precious son who had died in his sleep at only 13 months. This happened after the loss of their daughter at five days old, only two and a half years earlier. I have watched one of my closest friends suffer beautifully. By the age of 32, she had lost her mother to breast cancer Her father to Alzheimer's miscarried one of her children on Mother's Day weekend and suffered several other family trials during this time. Every time I talk to her, she exudes Jesus to me. She tells me how she just wants to remain faithful to him in the midst of the pain and knows that he is using it for her good and his glory. Some of you know that after the birth of our son, our oldest, we had two miscarriages. Some of you may or may not know how profoundly this experience changed me. We had moved from Lincoln, Nebraska, where I had grown up and where all of my family was, to Wheaton, Illinois, so that my husband could do his graduate degree. During the beginning of our time there, we became pregnant with our second child. We were so excited and thankful, and then shortly after we found out, I lost the baby. We grieved deeply for that little one we were never able to meet. We cried together and desperately tried to make sense of it all. One of the things I struggled most with was that the Lord allowed it to happen in a place where we had virtually no support system. Yet it was during this trial that the Lord raised up his people in the church we had only recently begun attending. New friends came over to pray with me to babysit Joshua so that Brandon and I could get time together and to bring us meals. And the Lord seemed to be saying to me, I will care for you wherever I call you. And the beautiful truth of his care beyond anything I could have ever imagined invaded my soul. Another truth that began to change me was the truth that Jesus not only heard my cry for help, but that he knew my suffering. During this miscarriage, God brought the words of a Michael Card song to my mind. It says, In your loving arms we lay, this wordless one so new, The incarnation of our love we dedicate to you. We offer you this child who's only ours for just a while. How could we keep it back from you when you gave your only child? God had given his son Jesus for the sake of my sin so that I could once again have an intimate relationship with God himself so that I could not only be completely forgiven for eternity, but once again bring God the glory that he so desperately deserves. So my prayer became that the loss of this little one's life would also be for the sake of his glory. Even still, I remember telling the Lord, okay, I'll walk this road one time, but never again. (laughs) I can never again grieve the loss of another baby. And so the Lord in his mercy allowed it to happen once again nine months later. Let me tell you, friends, I have never in my life felt the presence of the Lord that deeply, and felt so intimately cared for and carried by him. Immediately, the morning after we lost our baby, the words from the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, flooded my mind. Grace for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. God was flooding me with his grace in that moment, carrying me every step and gave me hope for tomorrow through the truth of his word, specifically in Isaiah 65. Verses 17 through 18 and 20 say, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. God gives us hope in the promise of a new creation, a hope beyond this world anchored in Jesus who died on the cross for all our sin, all of the ways you and I have broken his law and have tried to do things for ourselves and in our own strength and wisdom. There is hope because Jesus took on himself the brokenness of this world the sickness and death that have entered the world as a result of our sin. There is hope in his resurrection by which he defeated death and hell so that one day all will be made right. In Jesus, we have hope. And one day I will hold the hands of these sweet children as we look on the face of our Savior, who in mercy and grace will have made all things new. God taught me something else in my grief. I realized that God was using suffering to show me how truly desperate I was for Jesus. I would never call out to him to save me from my sinfulness and from the sadness and brokenness of this world on my own. I would never learn to cling to him and only him without him causing me to see my own sin and brokenness and the sin and brokenness that are holding this world captive. Suffering like we see in the story of the Israelites casts us onto Jesus in a way we would never naturally cast ourselves because of our sinfulness. Amy Carmichael, a missionary to India many years ago, once said, God does not heal our wounds by giving back to us that which he has taken away, but by standing beside us until we are able to say that his will for gain or loss, is good and perfect and acceptable. Let's hear that one more time. God does not heal our wounds by giving back to us that which he has taken away, but by standing beside us until we are able to say that his will, for gain or loss, is good and perfect and acceptable. He stands with us and beside us, never leaving us, but allowing suffering so that we will more deeply know his love and grace. Psalm 16 is a poignant example of a heart that hopes fully in God amid suffering. The psalmist asks the Lord to preserve him from his enemies, and then before any of his situation has changed, says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What is he talking about? How can his life be pleasant in the midst of his trial? It all has to do with his beautiful inheritance. You see, his hope is not in this life, his hope is in who God is and in what he will do through Jesus. He goes on to say, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He set the Lord always before him. He gazed on God himself by fixing his heart and mind on him, not on his situation, and trusted that God would remember his promises and would be faithful to give him eternal life, not abandon his soul to the grave, and a beautiful inheritance. We too have that same promise in 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So how do we, like the psalmist, allow the hope of the resurrection to shape our lives in the meantime, in this time when we wait for all things to be made right? We set the Lord always before us, and we remember. We continually go back to the Bible and drink in its truth because it will always, always point us back to Jesus to remember. We remember who he is, the perfect, sinless son of God, and what he has done, come down and entered into our brokenness in order to bring us from where we are to where he wants us to be. What other God comes into the messy, broken lives of his people who have rejected him in order to save them what other god can we turn to how can we be satisfied with anyone or anything else remember back to our philippians 2 passage where we see the beautiful picture of how jesus came down to save us listen again to the first verse verse 5 says have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus We are being called to imitate Jesus' life of sacrifice, which often includes suffering. Suffering is part of what God uses to make us more and more like himself. As we fix our eyes on Jesus and get to know him more and more deeply, as we walk through times of suffering, we will be changed by him in order that we might demonstrate who he is, an intimate God who suffered himself, giving all to rescue his people to a watching world. This is where he wants us to be, in a relationship with him, becoming more and more like him, so that one day we can live with him for eternity. We can rest, friends, in the midst of chaos, hopelessness, and grief, not because of our situation, but when we remember the hope of the one who will one day redeem our situation and who knows our sufferings intimately. I love the beautiful truth of Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I mentioned earlier that I'm from Nebraska, and two and a half years ago God called us to New New England. There is quite a cultural difference between the Northeast and the Midwest. (laughs) And on top of trying to adjust to the culture, we doubled the number of children we had after we moved here. So my youngest two blessings are 16 months apart. Some of you know about that. So (laughs) because of the amount of transition that the Lord called this introverted homebody to, I have really struggled to see God's goodness and to remember his love and grace toward me. And have at times fallen into a sense of loneliness and a lack of joy in the life God has called me to. One evening, Brandon gave me some time alone. And through the book I was reading, God reminded me of this truth from Hebrews. On the way home that night, I went through the list of difficulties my heart was facing and asked myself how Jesus himself had also experienced these trials and sufferings. Friends, my heart was so encouraged by the time I got home, knowing that I have a Savior who genuinely knows my sufferings and who has walked faithfully in the midst of them for me because I have at times been very faithless in the midst of these trials. And so believe That in the sin or the trial, no matter the depth of the sin or the trial, Jesus has already taken it on the cross and he wants to hold you in the midst of it. To be with you and to walk beside you. He also wants to encourage your hearts. Have you been rejected by someone you love deeply? So was he. By his disciples, his best friends on earth when he was being taken to his death. Have you been betrayed? He knows what that's like. He was taken to his death by one of his disciples, whom he loved deeply. Have you been abused? He knows what that feels like, too, being tormented on the cross. Are you lonely or sad, or are you just tired from the demands of life? So was he. He knows your sufferings and can weep with you. Have you sinned and deeply hurt someone you love? Jesus knows what this temptation feels like as he was tempted by Satan to disobey his father. Yet he did not give in and he suffered on the cross for all of your sin so that, friends, it is all paid for and you can rest in his forgiveness. This life will often let us down even the greatest joys of this life, because those joys don't last. Our satisfaction and security can only be in Jesus. He is the one who sees his people, hears their cries, knows their sufferings, remembers his promises, and comes down to deliver them. He is the one who promised us a beautiful new creation that through faith in him we look forward to where all of the sadness will come untrue. We have the hope of Jesus and his hands that hold us, lead us, and protect us in this meantime. Friends, as you walk through different trials in your life, gaze on Jesus and think about how he intimately knows your sufferings. Think through each of your specific burdens and ask him to show you how he has experienced that particular burden, whether in his life, as he walked on this earth, Or in his death, where he bore all the weight of every burden you and I face. Gaze on Jesus and remember the cross. How your sufferings became his sufferings. How your sin became his sin. And rest, friend. Rest in the powerful love and care of our God. May Psalm 112, 6 through 8 be true of us. For the righteous will never be moved He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Let's pray. Lord, you are the God who sees your people, who hears your cry who knows their sufferings, who remembers his promises, and who comes down to deliver them. You are the God who does that for each and every woman in this room. Oh, Lord, I pray for rest for our souls in the midst of the chaos and suffering and sin. I pray, Lord Jesus, that the truth of your gospel The good news of what you have done for us, Lord, on the cross would sink into every heart in this room, and that in you we would rest. In Jesus' name, amen.